You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hi, I'm Sherry Davis, Canada's Dogmaster and the trainer of Rex on the hit TV series Hudson and Rex. Today, we're talking about dogs as emotional support animals. This is How to Dog. There's nothing quite like having a dog to come home to. I find being with my dogs makes me happier than pretty much anything else. But not everybody has the privilege of owning a dog. That doesn't mean that they can't find canine emotional support. These days, specially trained dogs are used as emotional support dogs in many places, from nursing homes to hospitals, busy offices, and even in schools. But what makes a dog officially an emotional support animal? And what's the difference between an ESA, as they're called, and a dog working as a service animal? Or even just a pet? Are ESAs even a real thing? This week, in a brand new season of How to Dog, it's time to curl up with your companion and leave behind some of your stress because we're talking about emotional support animals. I have an emotional support dog. But it has no legs. Oh, yeah? What do you call it? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It won't come anyway. <laughs> so cruel. Hi, everyone. A reminder that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be professional advice. Always consult with an expert when taking care of your own doggo. Over to you, Sherry. My first guest today is Dr. Beth Daly. She's an anthrozoologist. That's a mouthful, but what it really means is that she studies animal-human relationships. Any dog can offer emotional support, of course, but some dogs are especially good at it, and Dr. Beth will tell us how. Dr. Beth, welcome to How to Dog. Thank you for having me. Could you do me a favor and tell our listeners what you do? Yes, I am an associate professor of anthrozoology at the University of Windsor. Um, a lot of people don't know what that means, but anthrozoology is the study of human-animal relationships. So I teach a number of courses associated with that topic, human-animal relationships. So when we say human-animal relationships, is it only like domestic or is it all animals? All animals. And that's a very good point. One of the things I always like to make very clear is it's anthrozoology is not animal rights. Anthrozoology is anything that ha having to do with our relationship with animals. That means meat eating. That means pest animals. When we talk about lab animals for research, for medicine, that, that's, our, uh, that's a relationship that we have with animals. So it's not only what some people might think is the good, but also the, you know, the difficult or the, the bad relationships. Uh, having an animal is like being in a marriage. So you are in love and you have the fabulous first two years, but then something happens and you fall out of love and you get divorced. But you know what? Your, your divorcee goes on, find a partner and lives happily ever after you find a new partner. And now you know what love is and what living is and how amazing life can be. And it's the same thing with an animal relationship with humans is sometimes 
they need to get a divorce as bad as that sounds and there's no shame in that you're right about the divorce but let's let's go way back i always tell students just because you're in love doesn't mean that this is a good partnership. And, you know, when we're talking about getting a, a new puppy, for instance, you, or a new dog, a, a dog, or any addition to the family, a, a cat, um, you you really need to make sure that that animal is going to suit, suit your household. It's probably not going to be the first one you stumble on. And if if it's not the right fit, if it's not, for instance, people getting looking for purebreds, I get asked this all the time. I have a small house. I live in an apartment. So I'm going to get a small dog. Listen, if you live in a small house, you don't want a terrier. You probably, you may even want a hound, a big hound, that, a greyhound that needs one or two good walks a day. And the rest of the time will curl up in the corner of your sofa. So the small dogs are often like having a squirrel loose in your house. <laughs> Today, what I would like to talk to you about is um, uh, service animals. And I'm using that as a very broad statement service because a lot of people misunderstand what the difference is between a service dog, um, let's say and an emotional support dog, a therapy dog. So I'm hoping that you can help us and some shed some light on these subjects. Yes, I am happy to, to talk just briefly about those differences because it's something I, I really try and um, point out to my students. So when we're talking about, and then we have the guide dogs. Guide dogs, um, and I believe guide dogs are the only federally regulated uh, type of animal, a service animal, that, um, and that is for that because of the, um, the guide dogs for the blind is a federal act in Canada, and I, I think. But when we talk about guide dogs, we're talking typically about um, dogs that uh, are dogs that lead people for the blind and dogs for people who are deaf have also, um, I'm not sure if that's federally regulated yet, but they also are considered dog guide dogs in a way, um, deaf hearing dogs. Those dogs we would call service dogs because they're providing a service, but they're, they have a special service. So a service dog, those are dogs that literally have a job that they're doing for somebody who can't do something, put clothes in the dryer, um, answer the door, dogs will bark for for people who can't hear when they hear the doorbell ring that's a service animal a therapy animal are generally the animals that you see visiting the hospital so i used to um, work in a capacity where i would certify people who wanted to take their dogs to visit people in the hospital i had a therapy dog my dog grasshopper and before that huckleberry both were, were um, therapy dogs because i would take them to the hospital they weren't trained to do anything special they were my pets but they had to pass um pass a a, a, um, a temperament test so anybody with a really good-natured friendly um, dog could get their dog certified if they pass this um, this temperament test a uh, emotional support animals are animals that are not trained necessarily most of them are pets and they are the animals that people will say I have this dog with me or I have this animal with me because mm -hmm. I have some um, emotional um, issues and they help me with that. Mental health issues, PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, anything like that, people will say, this is why I have this animal with me. They provide me comfort. I'm Sherry Davis and today on How To Dog, we're talking about emotional support animals. 
Later in the show, I will speak to Jeanette Fourier about her nonprofit organization, 4E Kennels Healing Hearts, which provides therapy dogs to deserving people. That's coming up shortly. Right now, I'm speaking to Dr. Beth Daly. She's an expert in human-animal relations, especially for therapeutic reasons. In any of the cases where you have an emotional support dog or a service dog, you should also have a doctor's letter saying that the dog is used for such purpose. That's a very good point. And the the, the other good thing, but the problem is that that list of who can write a letter for a person has become completely uh, wide open. You can even pay for one online. Did you write a paper about animal abuse and children abuse? Yes, yes, we did. We looked at whether or not people were more upset with if a puppy were in an abusive situation or an infant or was in an abusive situation. And we used the same scenario and we changed the word puppy and infant. We randomized it. We shuffled the answers. You know, we did everything to make it as randomized as possible. What we found was people who had children were more upset about the baby or the infant being abused. People who had pets and no children were more upset about the pet being abused. One of the things that a lot of people also think is, you know, oh, Homeless people shouldn't have dogs. You know, they can't even care for themselves. This is, you know, the, this is the, they, should, they can't care for themselves. Why should, how, why can they have dogs? Well, number one, you know, don't, don't even presume to know a, a homeless person's situation, number one. Number two, um, the, the research shows that people who are homeless not only adore their dog, but take amazingly good care of them. And, um, if you look, if you've ever seen a, a homeless person with their dog, the dog is usually off a leash, laying there sleeping, warm, well-fed, lying at their side. They meet people all day long. They hang out with their owner. They bond with their owner. They, they have a great life. Um, it's probably less comfortable for the homeless person, but dogs don't mind sleeping on the street. That's what they know, if they know that. I mean, my dog wouldn't be so happy sleeping on the street instead of tucked up under my chin or in her little special bed because she's a little spoiled, uh, she's a spoiled little house dog. But um, if a dog, th these dogs do very well. And boy, what, you know, I mean, I teach human-animal relationships, and I'll tell you, you don't see much stronger bonds than somebody who has nothing in their life but their dog. I mean, homeless people take very good care of their dogs, and they're very attached to their dogs, and they love their dogs, and their dogs are probably better cared for than a lot of household dogs. Is there any research that, uh, that you know of that an ESA animal actually is beneficial to the psychological well-being of a human i'm really glad you asked that question it's a, it's a really good question because the um problem is that there are um there's so many people claiming to have some kind of, of mental health issue that they need an emotional support dog and that's fine maybe they do help anecdotally the research is not there there has been ongoing research in the area of hippotherapy working with horses as well as with dogs for instance some of um some of the research that i've read says veterans 
uh, or whomever worked with horses for a six-week period of time and others didn't. At the end of the intervention, those who worked with horses were much improved in their PTSD. Okay, what about a year later? What if instead of horses, you gave them, uh, you know, a, a convertible car to drive along the Pacific Coast Highway? What if instead of a horse, you sent them on a six-week vacation? How do you know it wasn't the change in atmosphere or or environment or daily life that was the, that was successful? Now, this is important. Linus had a blanket. <laughs> I tend to eat when I'm stressed, and food makes me feel a whole lot better. When I have when I come home after a hard day, there's nothing like having my dog on my lap. Does my dog improve my emotional health? Absolutely. Absolutely. But um, people had pet rocks at one time too, right? So the, the point is we all have things that make us feel better. Does that mean, does that mean that we should be entitled to take them everywhere? Does that mean that, um, that they blanket help for everybody? If you are feel if you feel that you're emotionally impaired, that you have some mental health issues, should everyone get a dog? Well, that's that's the issue. It doesn't work for everyone. So that doesn't mean that it doesn't work for some. That doesn't mean that the the research is illegitimate. What what I do know is that there is very very little research that shows their efficacy. It's at the point now where we talked about this briefly earlier. Airlines are no longer allowing emotional support animals for anybody. So even if we did know that, yes, they help this for this, I mean, except with the exception, of course, of um, veterans in the U.S. because the ADA Act requires that they be allowed. But um, if we knew that it was, it was highly effective, then things might change. But the reality is that anybody who needs an emotional support animal can no longer have one because it has been so abused. So that's why research is important. And that's why when we look at other research that's being done, you know, a lot of people are, you know, research, I don't believe research, which is very popular in the U.S. right now. I don't believe the science, but we do, when it comes to emotional support animals, there's very little research right now that shows their consistent efficacy on groups of, um, of people. Dr. Beth Daly, again, thank you so much for the education and for joining us here today. Thank you. Dr. Beth Daly is an anthrozoologist and a professor of anthrozoology at the University of Windsor. It's, it's quite funny. I've had some experience at this. Um, when, when I was running my business, one of my... Um, employees was going to university and was struggling quite a bit with university and public speaking and actually they were right on the verge of dropping out of university but what i did notice is that when i started teaching um she would come and watch the classes and really engage in in that kind of stuff so i started to ask her to partake in the class. And I found that when she had a dog with her, her confidence just increased and she was able to speak out to people in class and, you know, and the whole demeanor of her started to change. And really unknowingly, she was always touching the dog. And as soon as she started to public speak, that dog would stand up beside her, lean into her 
And it was really a remarkable thing that the dog had just picked up on what she needed. And watching this happen was remarkable. And then when she was having so much trouble in university, I said, why don't we try something? I want you to try taking the dog to school with you. Well, oh my God, she ended up getting up and she was doing public speaking. She was able to um, do her presentations in university in front of, you know, the classrooms and the auditoriums. And, but as soon as that dog wasn't with her, she would just seize up and it just goes to show you how much an emotional support dog can actually do for somebody as it ended up that dog saved her schooling and her university career because she was able to take the dog with her to school and that is what got her through her university years my second guest today is Jeanette Forey. She is the founder of 4E Kennels Healing Heart, a nonprofit agency that connects therapy dogs with people who really need them. She's also a breeder and author of the Ultimate Badass Breeder's Guide. Jeanette, welcome to How to Dog. Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? I'm Jeanette Forey. I devised a nationally recognized puppy curriculum and puppy evaluation to really honor our puppies and give them a voice in their placement um, to increase the chances of them living out their purpose in a healthy, productive way, especially service dogs, facility dogs, therapy dogs, and ESA dogs. What is the name of your organization? We have 40 Kennels is my breeding program. We have Badass Breeder is my mentorship program for our breeders. And then we have our nonprofit, which is uh, 40 Healing Hearts. And what exactly does your nonprofit do? We donate service dogs, facility dogs, mainly those two, um, to those that at really are deserving and special and that we really feel their life can be changed and their heart healed through the power of a dog. You know, for a lot of our listeners, they don't understand what you just said. They're like service dogs and a facility dog. What's the difference? Can you explain to us what the difference is? Yes, I would love to, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about these roles and how they're defined and what, what they should be doing for you. Um, a service dog, I always kind of put that at the top tier. That is the only type of working dog that's covered by the ADA. Um, it's the only dog specifically trained to help a one person mitigate a disability or medical condition. So they're trained specifically for one person and by law, they're able to gain access to public places. It's one person's dog. The dog works just for them. A facility dog, which, which we do a lot of, it, it's really kind of new and upcoming, Sherry, where people, where communities, where workplaces are really understanding the power of one dog um, that can be impacted in their community or their workforce or helping their clientele. So a facility dog works for one location, whether that's a school, a funeral home, a dental office, uh, victims advocacy at a courthouse. The facility dog works for that one location and it goes home with its one person. It's still really just this powerful pet in a way. Um, so it lives at home with its person, but then goes to work with that person and works with them throughout the day 
truly uh, changing lives and healing hearts. A therapy dog is also a pet, um, but you you typically need to work under an organization like Therapy Dogs International, Delta Pet Partners, and you typically only work one hour a week, and it's whatever they have contracted. They have their rules and uh, regulations and training that the dog has to complete and, and display, and so you're working under that organization. It's typically one hour a week, and you could do hospice care or um, a school, a library. And then there's an ESA, which, which people really get confused about, or people say, you know, I need a comfort dog. Um, there's an emotional support animal and that's ESA. There's no special training required, Sherry. It, it is just a pet. There's no special allowance of where this dog can and cannot go. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just going to be honest. I think all of our dogs are our emotional support animals. I think that's what they do. Um, but typically when you start calling it an ESA, generally people are really struggling with depression or anxiety. Those are the top two. And then, so the question is, and when is it a service dog and when is it, it's not. And we explain it. If the dog isn't trained to do anything specific to help you stop or mitigate, um, your anxiety or your depression, that's not a service dog. But if the dog's been trained in public access work, which can take over a year. If it's been trained to be able to work in public and it literally has at least two tasks like depressure therapy, body blocking, stopping a repetitive behavior of cutting or rocking or, you know, something like that. If it's trained specifically to do that, now it is, it's, it's going to slide into the service dog category. Um, a few years back, uh, they started a program at one of the universities out here in Ontario. And at exam time, they actually brought in dogs to the study hall. And they found that it really helped students with A, their anxiety, B, their study, and C, it actually reflected um, on the marks on the kids' exams. Dogs really have this amazing ability. And, you know, it, it's funny because you don't ever want to say that, um, you know, oh, well, your dog isn't this or your dog isn't that. Because like you say, every dog is like an ESA for, for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Truly it is. And now it's just really defining roles and training. And like I said, I, I started this journey. I was a teacher in the Las Vegas area and I, I taught at risk kids that that was kind of my niche. That was my love. That was my passion, but I was getting burnt out and I had a little dog. I was, it was a therapy dog. I only took him Thursday nights to long-term care facility, the same facility. We visited with the same, the same clients there. And I had this crazy idea one night, Sherry, that I wanted to be the first teacher in Las Vegas to have a dog in my classroom full time. Um, and what I saw it took me a long time to get there and a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of really fighting for what I really believed in. And what I found was it didn't just impact my students, my classroom, it impacted the entire community. It was for staff. There was a huge change in staff morale. There was a huge change in parents coming to open house because the dog was going to be there. Our parents are going to come to the basketball games because the dog is going to be there. We saw as a whole greater attendance on the whole entire campus. My kids' reading scores were higher than they've ever been. And like you said, they the, their scores were higher. The attendance was higher. Less discipline issues. All because of the power of a 10-pound 
dog. But what I found is he hated that job, Sherry. He hated every minute of the unpredictability. He just wanted mama to hold him. He didn't like all the unpredictability. So that was my plight of really honoring the voice of a dog and making sure they're living out their purpose too. Um, so I turned to a breeder for the first time and I, and a second and a third and got stamped three times. Um, my first encounters with breeders and what I found was, was really disheartening that breeders really didn't know their puppies. They didn't know how to train their puppies. They didn't know the developmental benchmarks of a puppy or how they should be raised and how to empower a puppy so that they believed in their own abilities. Because if we can't do that, if we can't meet the needs of our puppy, if we can't make sure they're fulfilled and they're honored and they're respected, we sure as heck cannot expect them to work for us for the rest of their life. You know, I know that you have a program where you actually do some training with the dogs when they're puppies, you start them. So you kind of have an idea of which dogs are going to be good for what. And I mean, kudos to you. What a, an amazing, amazing feat, because I know how much work goes into bringing up puppies and spending all that time and working with them and knowing your puppy, like knowing your puppies. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I started with the teacher mindset. Um, remember that was that one litter I wanted to raise. So I felt she had been raised. So I wanted to set them up for success and, and I, knowing how unpredictable a classroom is. So I devised a 10 step handling um, process where we start at really three weeks old. Like the first two weeks, it's just holding, holding close to our face, to our heart. We're, we're, we're naturally incorporating ourselves into their life. Um, and then at three weeks, we start a more, the more regimented, you know, 10 step handling. You can't make all puppies and dogs love improper handling, but what we can do, we can give them the gift of being tolerant and understanding that, you know, there is certain types of handling that is going to be required. There's groomers, there are vets, there are people that accidentally step on you or fall over you. Um, so really desensitizing handling. But then we really took a, a really accelerated approach of aligning curriculum to their sensitive developmental benchmarks because so many breeders were getting it wrong, either pushing too soon and doing things too unpredictable before they built that trust in the puppies, before the nerve endings were fully formed, before they could really truly process that kind of work. So uh, devising along you know, their developmental benchmarks and then just increasing the complexity, the problem solving. And our, our big thing too, is not to enable a puppy. They need to be empowered. They really need to be able to complete the activity and challenge because that is where they find their worth and their confidence. And all puppies deserve to know the world is safe. People are kind and other dogs are friendly. So when we give them that foundation of we work with and for you, it's always positive. We believe in you. We want you to know that, you know, you can believe in yourself as well. Like, I just can't explain or express how important that's been. And I, I mentor over 5,000 breeders and so many are using my program. Most people like dogs more than other people. Let's be real. You and I both, right? Like we yeah. love our dogs. Like, but the I'm problem guilty. is I'm so guilty. <laughs> I know we do girl. I am with you. What is your average? Like if you have a litter, do you keep so many for, um, for support dogs or service dogs and then other go to pet? Like what is your, like, is it maybe like 20% of the pups might be eligible for uh, service work or for therapy work or yep, how, that's, how, yeah, that's almost exactly. Yeah. 
uh, average litter 10 and two go into facility or service work. Typically, I do have some parents that, that do produce more working puppies in a litter, their lines and, you know, just that fine tuning and constantly evaluating and collecting data um, to continue to improve my lines and keep targeting what I'm trying to accomplish, like therapy, facility, service dog, um, you know, finding that purpose and meaning in my program and then devising everything around it. I do take a very holistic approach with, with my breeding dogs. It's health, temperament, it's everything. It's not just one thing um, because I want very reliable, um, sound dogs that have good trainability, good temperaments to, to do this type of work. So yes, our, I, I think that's fairly high. I'm very, very proud. We have over 300 documented, verified working dogs. Not um, Right. Yeah. So we're on average 20%. Again, some parents, I can get four out of 10 into working line, you know, working positions. So, wow. Congratulations. That's Thank phenomenal. You. Wow. Like, I, I, okay. Let me tell you how I do my program. So for me, we work with the dog. We train the dog. Dog has tasks. Then we train with the human. So the dog is now etiquette trained in public and the dog is trained to do its tasks, but now it's training the owner, the etiquette in public. You, you know, I see people all the time and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, my dog's a service dog and it's running around the restaurant. And I'm like, oh my Lord, what is happening? Or it's barking and jumping on people and, 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 and they've got these vests on the dog saying it's a certified dog. And I'm like, you know, can you give us a little bit of, of feedback there? <laughs> Where do you want me to start, Sherry? <laughs> well, <laughs> Unfortunately, again, and I just say it the way it is, uh, there, there are people that are martyrs and, you know, they want to rescue dogs and they always call them rescue dogs for the rest of their life, with the, which I think is such a shame because you're labeling that dog and dogs live in the moment and you're diminishing their power and their happiness by keeping them in that space and feeling pity toward them all the time. Number one. Uh, number two, then we have people that are they're just, they feel they have the right to have their dog with them all the time. And so they'll just put a vest on them and take them out in public. And I think it's really, really selfish. And I think we do need to, we do need to address this because then the handlers and the dogs that are truly out there working, it's ruining it for them. It's absolutely making it harder for them to get into places that they absolutely should be allowed to get into. It's making other people in the public turn a side eye and be frustrated. Oh, there's another dog in here because the day before they were in here, a dog was barking and pooped on the floor and whatever, right? Like, so it's ruining it for them too. Plus the distraction, if, if a real service dog and handler go into a place or, you know, some kind of public event and there's another dog and the dog attacks the service dog or is barking at the service dog. Now that trainer has to fix that because, you know, with any negative experience, you want to make sure that, it's, it's managed correctly and mitigated correctly with your dog so you don't have continued issues. Um, it's a human problem. I cannot say it enough. And I'm, I'm not a big advocate of, of somebody keeping a dog that, that is not the right fit. Like, I think we need to stop that shaming too, that someone's horrible by rehoming their dog. Look, we didn't get it right for whatever reason. And the best thing you can do is honor your dog. And if you can't give them what you need, what they need rather, if you can't do that, then the best thing to do is find them a home that does, but be their voice, be the voice for the dog and make sure you clearly and tr truthfully, truthfully articulate what that dog needs to thrive and excel and, and serve its purpose. But absolutely the dog shouldn't be forced to stay in a relationship and a home that's unhealthy. At the end of the day, that's what it becomes. For me, uh, as a, as a responsible breeder and 
animal lover if you can't keep one of my dogs that you have taken whether it's a rescue whether it's a, a bred dog whatever bring it back to me it's in a contract yes that's what i'm talking about can you again tell our listeners where they can find you yeah. So for puppies, it's four E kennels, the number four, the letter E kennels.com for our nonprofit to apply for a free service facility dog. It's four E healing hearts.com. And for our mentorship program, um, or if you'd like me to speak at a conference or look into my book, my program, my software, my classes, that's badassbreeder.com. Thank you. Thank you again so much for inviting me. Jeanette Forey is the founder of 4E Kennels Healing Hearts, a registered nonprofit organization that helps people who need therapy dogs by pairing them with suitable dogs. As long as I've had dogs, I've always treasured their ability to be there for me, often before I even knew I needed them. And now I've learned a lot more about what goes on in making a successful emotional support dog. And I hope you've learned something too. If you have time, please rate, review, and follow us in your podcast player of choice. Hudson and Rex returns with all new episodes this January on City TV. And catch up anytime on City TV Plus, the City TV app, or at CityTV.com. And now it's time for Fun Dog Facts. Many people claim to be fans of only big dogs, and just as many prefer small dogs. But would they take it to the extreme? According to the Guinness World Records, a Mastiff named Zorba was the world's largest dog ever. Zorba weighed 343 pounds and measured over 8 feet from the tip of his nose to the end of his tail. If you're looking for something to compare it to, he was the size of a small donkey. At the other end of the, um, scale is Miracle Millie, a chihuahua born in 2011. Millie was all of 3.8 inches tall and weighed in at just one pound. How to Dog is hosted by Sherry Davis. Produced by me, Davin Langell. And me, Adam Killick. Executive producers, Christina Jennings, Scott Garvey, and Sherry Davis. Editing and mixing, also by me, Adam Killick. Research by the amazing Nicole Saltz. How to Dog is a Shaftesbury podcast produced in association with Rogers Sports and Media Incorporated and part of the Frequency Podcast Network. You can find more great shows at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. Copyright 2022, Shaftesbury.